Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode contains disturbing violence. Please take care while listening. You all right? A little bit upset. The third time I interviewed Peter Bogdanovich was the hardest. Thanks, Peter. Boy, that was exhausting. I'm sorry, I know. We talked about Dorothy Stratton that day, his relationship with her, how her murder changed his life. The recording took a lot longer than the two hours Peter and I had agreed to. Wait, I thought we got to quit at five or something. I don't know. It didn't feel like... I mean, I didn't want to come back to it, you know? Yeah, well, I wanted to get you through it. And... Thank you. That was tough, though, I tell you. So much of this process is taking Peter into his memories, and this is the memory I knew we had to explore, and I wasn't looking forward to it. I'm sorry, Peter. I'm sorry for all No, don't be to... sorry. No, I'm just, I'm sorry for you. I want, I want joy in your world. Well, I have joy now. I do think Peter has found joy, but I've come to believe joy is different for him now, that tragedy and grief changes the tenor of everything after it, for better or worse. What happened to Peter, there's no way to prepare for that. Playboy Magazine's 1980 Playmate of the Year has been found shot to death, Dorothy killed Stratton apparently was Playboy's by The story of how Dorothy Stratton was murdered by her husband, Paul Snyder, has been told in documentaries and tabloids. There's a version written by a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and a movie directed by Bob Fosse, Star 80. When the editor of Playboy told me I'd won Playmate of the Year, the first thing out of my mouth was, are you sure? <laughs> Peter himself wrote a very personal book about it called The Killing of the Unicorn. But this isn't that. This is 80-year-old Peter Bogdanovich sitting across from me with his bandana and his lemonade, with Dorothy's sister Louise watching from the control room, protecting him. <laughs> anyway. And he's protecting her. That's the story. This is Peter telling me about the hardest moment of his life. I'm Ben Mankiewicz, and this is season one of The Plot Thickens, a new podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This is episode six. Dorothy. It was 1978, and Peter was walking out the door of the Playboy Mansion when he saw Dorothy Stratton for the first time. As he was being introduced to her, he had one thought. 
this is the most beautiful girl I have ever seen, was the first thing that crossed my mind. It was before her hair had been dyed platinum blonde, you know. She still had her natural golden hair. And uh, I was so struck by how beautiful she was. Dorothy was just 18, fresh-faced, blonde, blue-eyed, tall and curvy, shy, and a little reserved. She had moved to Los Angeles from Vancouver, Canada, just two months earlier with Paul Snyder, her boyfriend. He'd met her at a Dairy Queen in Vancouver, where she'd worked since she was 14. Dorothy grew up in a rough area of the city with her mother, Nellie, and her younger brother, John. This is Dorothy reflecting on her childhood. My family is important to me. We were brought up through a lot of hard times, and, and we stuck them out together. I've never had a father to support the family, so it's always been my mother. And my Dorothy's father abandoned the family when she was three. Money was always tight, especially when Nellie's third child came along, Dorothy's half-sister Louise. Nellie, a Dutch immigrant, worked as a housekeeper and saved enough money to move the family to a nicer part of town. She got a job at a local hospital. Dorothy continued to work, too, taking a long bus ride to the Dairy Queen every weekend. Well, when I came from the town that I came from, um, I lived with my family still. I just graduated from high school. I worked in a Dairy Queen for four years wearing pigtails and no makeup. That's the Dorothy Paul Snyder met when he strolled into Dairy Queen for a Sunday. It was early in 1978, and Dorothy was graduating from high school in a few months. Snyder was 26 and a low-level hustler. In the neighborhood, he was known as the Jewish pimp. He wore long leather coats, drove a Corvette, and had a 70s-era mustache. He didn't sell drugs, but when he needed money, and that was often, he sold women. Snyder pursued Dorothy, gave her gifts. She'd only had one other boyfriend, so the attention was overwhelming. Eventually, Snyder convinced her to take a few nude photos. He sent them to Playboy magazine as part of the great playmate hunt of 1978. Paul Snyder was a big Playboy fan and an admirer of Hugh Hefner. He wanted to get to Hollywood and the Playboy mansion. He thought Dorothy was his best chance. He wasn't wrong. Just one day after seeing those nude photos of Dorothy, Hefner flew her to Los Angeles for test shots. Dorothy was immediately given a Playboy modeling contract. At first, she didn't tell Nellie what was happening. But a few months before she appeared in the pages of Playboy, Dorothy told her mother. Nellie talked about her reaction in an interview with Playboy. At first, I was really angry about the thing. I didn't believe it, and I didn't want to believe it, because I had never seen my daughter naked, only when she was a baby, you know. And she was always very much um, conservative. But uh, I've talked to Dorothy, and she says, Mommy, I'm not selling my body, I'm selling my beauty, my looks. And I know my daughter well enough that what she says is it's the truth, and she's an intelligent girl, you see. Dorothy moved to L.A., and Paul Snyder soon followed. Eventually, they rented a two-story house in West Los Angeles, right next to the Santa Monica Freeway. Less than two years later, Hugh Hefner named Dorothy Stratton Playboy's Playmate of the Year. A pleasure to welcome all of you here for a presentation of our 1980 Playmate of the Year. And uh, she is something rather special. 
They always are, but Dorothy is, uh, is really quite unique. Dorothy appeared on the cover of the magazine and was invited to be on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Yesterday, she was named Playmate of the Year. Mm. So we thought um, we would save the dessert to last. We sure tonight. Would you welcome Dorothy Stratton? Dorothy came out wearing an expensive-looking white silk gown. There was a flower in her hair. She looked like a movie star. Though you could still see traces of the girl from Dairy Queen. Johnny Carson asked Dorothy about the prizes she'd received for being Playmate of the Year. I got a $65,000 Russian sable fur coat and a $25,000 check. There's a moment in this interview where Dorothy turns the tables on Carson, which is hard to do when you have so little media experience. And when you're dealing with Johnny Carson, whose media savvy was unrivaled. What do you notice first about a man? man's walking down the street, or you walk into a room. What's the first thing you notice? Stand up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) His chest. I notice a man's chest first. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Very nice, very nice. Good. Good. I feel so self-conscious about my chest. Just like that, Dorothy took the power away from Carson. She made him stand up. He became the object. She gave him a little taste of what that feels like, all while making the audience laugh. Based on Dorothy's demeanor in this interview, you'd never guess she was experiencing any inner turmoil. But she had to have been. At this point, she'd been married to Paul Snyder for 11 months, They got married at the Silver Bell Wedding Chapel in Las Vegas. Hugh Hefner and Dorothy's new friends at the mansion tried to talk her out of the marriage. They never trusted or liked Snyder. But after a period of indecision, Dorothy married him anyway. She didn't tell her mother for over a month. At the time of the Carson interview, her marriage was already in trouble. Dorothy's star was rising, and as she rose, Snyder grew more controlling. And to make things even more complicated, Dorothy had fallen in love with somebody else. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. 
In October of 1979, months before Dorothy's Tonight Show interview with Johnny Carson, Peter was still reeling from the death of his mother, and he was missing Sybil. She'd moved on, though, married a man from Memphis, her hometown. I was very unhappy at first. And um, for the first time in my life, I think, I played the field, as they say. And uh, started going with a bunch of different girls. But those brief affairs made him feel lonely. Some things, however, were looking up. Peter had a new movie in the works. He even had a title, They All Laughed, from a George and Ira Gershwin song written for the 1937 movie, Shall We Dance? They all laughed at Christopher Columbus when he said the world was round. They all laughed when Edison... Remember, this was the fall of 1979. The rest of the country was dancing to Donna Summer and the Bee Gees, but not Peter. He was sticking to the old standards. And he was busy writing the script for They All Laughed, which focused on a couple of private detectives who followed married women to see if they were having affairs. Ben Gazzara and John Ritter signed on to play the detectives. Gazzara had worked with Peter in Singapore on his last film, St. Jack. And Benny Gazzara and I talked a lot about our various relationships while we were in Singapore for six months. Um, And I thought, maybe I'll write a movie about that, about some of the relationships that we had and things we talked about and so on. And that's how they all laughed started. John Ritter was a master of physical comedy, starring on a hit TV show, Three's Company. Come and knock on our door. Jack. You know my name. He and Peter were friends. And the character that John Ritter played, which was sort of me, younger, spent the entire script mooning over the loss of a girl he was in love with. I was going to use Sybil's photograph in his room. Audrey Hepburn agreed to play the female lead, and they all laughed. Peter had never worked with Hepburn, and he couldn't believe his luck. She was a true Hollywood icon, known for Breakfast at Tiffany's and Funny Face, But she hadn't done much acting over the last 10 years. She'd been busy raising her sons. Peter hired Hepburn's son, Sean, to be his assistant, which helped convince her to take the role. And topping it all off, Peter planned to shoot They All Laughed in New York City, his hometown. It was all coming together. Taking a break from writing one night, Peter asked a friend to take him over to the Playboy Mansion. And, um... I said, drop over to the mansion, come back in 20 minutes and pick me up. I'm just going to say hello to Hef. I haven't seen him for a long time. So I went into the mansion, and I was walking through the foyer, and somebody yells out, Peter. And I turned around, and I couldn't figure out who that was coming running toward me. And when she got closer, I realized it was Dorothy. Last time they'd met, almost a year earlier, Peter had given Dorothy his number, said he was casting a movie and she should call him. She never called. This time, though... Dorothy wanted to talk. And we sat on some stairs somewhere in the, near the foyer, and Dorothy and I sat and talked for about an hour. Dorothy told him she was doing some acting. She had a small role in the roller disco comedy Skate Town USA. And she mentioned in the conversation that she'd been, she got married. I remember feeling kind of a jolt in my heart at that moment. Peter asked Dorothy if she wanted to audition for a part, and they all laughed. 
A month later, Dorothy Stratton walked into Peter's Bel Air home to talk about a role in his movie. She was 19 and wore a white dress, floppy hat, and high heels. They had tea in his office, and Peter told her about the part. At the time, it was the role of a secretary. They read through a scene, and it turned out Dorothy was good at line readings. What happened next seems fairly typical of how Peter Bogdanovich might court a woman. He started reading her a scene from Private Lives, a play by the English writer Noel Coward. It's a comedy about a divorced couple who end up honeymooning in the same hotel with their new spouses. Afterwards, they smoked cigarettes and talked. She told me some rather intimate stories about her first boyfriend who she'd saved up for a year to buy him a special ring and... He got pissed off at her and took a hammer and destroyed the ring, and she was still upset about it. Anyway, um, we got to know each other, and later on when we knew each other quite well, she somehow came out that she was interested in me because I didn't make a pass at her. And everybody was making passes at her, and I didn't make a pass at her. You know, I once said to Howard Hawks, how come, Howard, in your pictures... It's always the girl that makes the first move. And Howard said, Did you ever see anything sillier than a guy making a pass? <laughs> Dorothy and Peter didn't see each other for another six weeks, but started talking on the phone. Dorothy told Peter she'd read Private Lives and loved it. Not long after, he cast her and they all laughed. We started seeing each other more often. I mean, always talking about doing the picture. And like that, and I just liked talking with her, and she was so smart. Peter rewrote Dorothy's part, expanding her role into one of the leads. She would play a young woman in a bad marriage who becomes John Ritter's love interest. Sometimes Dorothy would visit Peter and talk openly about her struggles with her husband. At some point, we were sitting on the couch in my living room. I remember she just put her head on my shoulder, and she was sad about something. And for a long time, that's how their relationship evolved, in a very chaste way. Dorothy would share a little more of herself, and Peter would fall a little more in love. For some reason, I said, let's go down to the beach, go for a walk. We were walking in the sand for quite a while, and suddenly we just both turned to each other and we kissed each other. And it was just like, blew me away. And that was the beginning. We talked about doing anything else, and she said, I can't, I can't do anything because I have to go back to my husband, and I can't do anything but this, meaning kiss. So that's all we did for about a month. Peter flew to New York, where pre-production had started on They All Laughed. And um, she wrote me, a, she sent me a card from L.A. to New York of a girl, and she's jumping for joy down by the ocean. It was perfect. And inside, she had written, One Day Since Yesterday. One Day Since Yesterday would appear on future cards and gifts from Dorothy. But at that moment, seeing those words for the first time, Peter was inspired to write a song. He enlisted Earl Poole Ball to help. Ball was a well-known musician, and he played a pianist, and they all laughed. Their song would be performed by actress Colleen Camp in the movie. What can you do to can stop a feeling? Can you just crush it in your hand? And I was thinking that, you know, this girl is married, and I'm madly in love with her, and 
she's in love with me. What are we going to do? Peter spent most weekdays in New York prepping the movie. On weekends, he flew back to L.A. to see Dorothy. She wasn't at all like any of the girls I'd met at the mansion. Something different about her. And she was very smart and very intuitive and just very dear. And I had a great sense of humor. Oh, boy. Peter started calling Dorothy DR, her first initial, and R for Ruth, her middle name. He gave her a unicorn pin and, for Valentine's Day, a copy of the Arabian Nights. Peter wrote a code within its pages that spelled, PB loves DR. Dorothy wrote poetry about Peter and anguished at her situation. They hadn't slept together, but they were falling in love. In March of 1980, Peter went to New York's Kennedy Airport to pick up Dorothy. She was flying in to shoot. They all laughed. <laughs> she was the last person off the plane. I thought she hadn't made the plane because everybody's out and they were all gone and she still hadn't come out. And then she came out and she was carrying like four suitcases. She had, she just I packed everything. She said, it was weird. She said, I brought all this stuff. I felt like I was moving out. It was Dorothy's first time in New York. After checking into her hotel, they went to an old-school Italian restaurant called Nicola's and then took one of those horse-drawn carriage rides through Central Park. Not long after, Dorothy moved into Peter's room at the Plaza Hotel. New York felt a world away from Hollywood and the Playboy Mansion. Peter and Dorothy would go for long midnight walks. In those days, there were bookshops, bookstores, and there was a double day about two blocks from the plaza. And um, we used to go there a lot. And she wanted to see a play on Broadway. She'd never seen a play on Broadway. So she went to see The Elephant Man on Broadway. And we were in this bookshop, and she was looking through this book about The Elephant Man, the real, the real Elephant Man. There were pictures in there, and she was looking at them carefully, and I couldn't even look at them for more than a second. It was, it was horrible. So I, she asked, you want this? She said, yeah, so I bought it for her. But at some point, I realized what it was about, which is that great beauty or great ugliness sets you apart. And I remember walking down the street with her, and everybody turned around and looked at her. Everybody. The dogs did. I'm not kidding. I saw a little dog looking after her. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, everybody's looking at you. She said, no, they're looking at you, she said. And I said, they're not looking at me. If they're looking at me, they're just looking to see who you're with. <laughs> I said, how does that make you feel? She said, I don't like it. Why? She said, I don't know. I feel like I have ice cream on my dress or something. So being an outsider, looking that good or looking that ugly sets you apart. And that's why she identified with the elephant man. Isn't that weird? When shooting began for They All Laughed, Peter and Dorothy kept their relationship quiet. Dorothy did a TV interview during this time. I'm in the middle of another movie right now that I'm shooting in New York called They All Laughed with uh, Peter Bogdanovich is directing, Audrey Hepburn and Ben Gazzara is starring. Do you have some talking parts? Oh, I have a co-starring role. Oh, good, good. She doesn't even seem to let the interviewer get her down, the one who condescendingly asks if she had any talking parts. In the movie, John Ritter's detective follows Dorothy's character, Dolores, and falls in love with her. What do you do, Charles? You never told me. Uh, it's a travel agent. Ben Gazzara is a detective who falls in love with the woman he's following played by Audrey Hepburn. They have a brief, bittersweet affair, which was extra poignant 
because they had once had an affair in real life. Well, I must say you have very good taste in women, which is more than could be said about my taste in men. Uh-huh. Where does that leave me? Dangling miserably, I hope. For the most part, the shoot for They All Laughed was a blast for Peter. The best man at his wedding to Polly, George Morforgan, was producing, and the cast was made up mostly of Peter's friends. Some were former girlfriends. It was becoming a pattern in Peter's life. The women he dated would often become his friends after the breakup. When he was playing the field, he dated Colleen Camp, who plays a country singer in the movie. He also had a short affair with Patty Hansen, who would later become guitarist Keith Richards' wife. Hansen plays a streetwise cab driver. In the movie, Ben Gazzara's character gives her the nickname Sam when he gets in her cab. Keep it right here, Sam. Sam who? Well, what's your name? My name's Deborah. That's why I called you Sam. They shot most of the film on the busy streets of New York. They worked quickly in small, mobile crews, stealing shots where they could. As a result, the movie has a real energy to it. It seems Peter was channeling some of what Orson Welles told him when they were recording interviews for Peter's book on Orson. I make a master plan and then throw it away, but I make it. But you have to be very flexible then. Yes. It's a basic part of my, uh, the way I work with a group of people is that I always move. But not because I'm impatient, but because of what I think will happen to the picture if we don't. And you keep the energy of the picture up all the time. Yes. Keeping this in mind, Peter took a loose approach with the script. It kept changing, and I kept rewriting it. While I was shooting, rewrote a lot of it, and I'd make up a scene just before we shoot it. And uh, I gave the picture a certain freshness, which I, I liked. Peter also cast his two young daughters, and they all laughed. Sashi and Antonia had been living in L.A. with Polly since the divorce, so they flew to New York during their school's spring break. In this scene, they're walking down a Manhattan street with Ben Gazzara, who plays their dad in the movie. A lot of the dialogue in that scene is stuff Peter's daughters actually said to him during his bachelor days. You got a date tonight? How about the cab driver? Good, I don't like when you're alone. Stop worrying, you get an ulcer. I love you, Dad. She said, I don't like when you're alone. My daughter said that to me once. Okay, bye. As all this was happening, Dorothy was getting to know Peter's daughters. Dorothy really got down on the floor and colored with them, you know. And I thought that was so sweet, and she really enjoyed them, and... Easter, she hid Easter eggs everywhere, and oh gosh, she made it so much fun. She wasn't doing it to make me happy, or she just really got into the kids, and the kids were different with her. I remember Antonia said, she's the best one, Dad. She's, she's the best one. Throughout the days and weeks of shooting, Peter became more resolute. He wanted to be with Dorothy. We were very much in love. I wanted to marry her. In June, two months after her arrival in New York, Dorothy sent an official letter to her husband, Paul Snyder, letting him know they were separated. The letter was drafted by a lawyer Peter recommended. The process of leaving Snyder had begun. When Peter and Dorothy talked about how Snyder might take the news, Dorothy assured him of one thing. Snyder would never hurt her. After the shoot wrapped, Peter and Dorothy flew to London for 10 days. They saw plays by Harold Pinter and Dario Fo. They saw Oscar Peterson and Ella Fitzgerald perform. Dorothy had never been to a museum, so they went to the National Gallery. It was, for Peter, and I assume Dorothy, a kind of honeymoon. On the flight back to Los Angeles, Dorothy cried. 
It was the last flight they would take together. When they returned to Los Angeles, Dorothy went to see Paul Snyder, now her estranged husband. Afterwards, she told Peter about it. He played her some songs on his guitar. He had a girl there named Patty, whom he was going to take to the mansion to try to introduce her there. And she came back and she said everything was fine. He was sad, but okay, he was fine. Hugh Hefner was glad Peter and Dorothy were back in L.A. He wanted his playmate of the year back at the mansion parties. There's a thing that they had every year called the Midsummer Night's Dream Party, in which you came in your pajamas and it was a Midsummer Night's Dream Party, whatever it was. And we were invited to go. And neither Dorothy nor I felt like it, so we didn't go. Hefner was disappointed. So in order to encourage the couple to attend future parties, Hefner made Peter an offer. He says, you didn't come to the party. I said, no, we didn't. Uh, and she said, well, would it help you to come to the party if I told the husband that he can't come here except with Dorothy? In other words, Paul Snyder would not be allowed at the Playboy Mansion unless he came with Dorothy, who had just officially separated from him. And this is where I made a big mistake. I said, yeah, I guess it would help. I thought to myself, well, she doesn't want to come here, and I don't want to come here either, but I guess I would want to say, no, it wouldn't help. So I said, yeah, I guess it would help. And then he banned him from the mansion. By many accounts, this would have been devastating to Snyder, who modeled himself on Hefner and believed all his plans for fame and fortune were tied to the Playboy universe. Peter told Dorothy what Hefner planned. And when I told Dorothy that he was planning to do that, it was on a staircase. And you're not supposed to exchange. It's considered bad luck to exchange important information on a staircase. I found out later. And I said to her, he wants to ban him from the mansion unless you're there. And she hesitated. I remember she paused and before she took the next step. She should have told me not to do that, tell him not to do that. But she didn't. She, didn't, she just didn't know what to do, I think. It sounds to me like for basically 40 years, you've been replaying whether conversations had happened at a different time in a different way, whether there'd been a little more forthcomingness that things might have been different. Yes, it would have been, would have been different, yeah. They would have been different if I had said, no, don't, 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 don't do that. On August 14, 1980, 10 months after Dorothy and Peter began their relationship, Dorothy went to meet Snyder at their old house. He was now living there with Patty and a new girlfriend. Dorothy and Snyder were going to discuss how to split her financial assets. She didn't tell me she was going to see him that day. Dorothy's 12-year-old sister, Louise, was visiting at the time. She was staying at the Bel Air house with Dorothy and Peter and Peter's daughters. She told Louise, and she said, don't tell anybody. So only Louise knew where Dorothy was going that day. And as Peter said... Dorothy swore her little sister to secrecy. After a while, Peter started to worry. Well, she said she'd be back around two, and when it got to be at four, we were kind of worried. And we suffered through that day because Louise knew where she'd gone and didn't tell me that until six o'clock. I thought, oh, shit. Part of Peter worried that Snyder had somehow convinced Dorothy not to go through with the divorce. So he had his secretary call Snyder's house, but there was no answer. And um, 
we just got more and more worried. Didn't know what to do about it. And finally, around 11 o'clock, phone rings, I answered it. It was Hefner. Hi, Hef, how you doing? Haven't you heard? Heard what? Oh, God, he said. This is the hardest moment in my life. He said two words, Dorothy's dead. The phone fell from Peter's hands and he cried out. He fell to the floor. The horrible details came out later. Paul Snyder shot and killed Dorothy Stratton that afternoon. Shot her in the face in their former bedroom. Then he turned the gun on himself. I kind of fell apart. Did you want to go to the house? No. I wanted to go for a drive and drive off a canyon or something. They wouldn't let me get in the car. They gave me two Valium. Didn't speak to anybody. I just cleaned a basket case. I couldn't deal with anything. I couldn't even see my kids. I didn't want to see my kids. I didn't see my sister. I didn't see anybody. I just lay in the bed hitting my hand against the wall for two days. Did you, uh, I mean, it's natural. Did you blame yourself? Did you think you should have done something? Oh, sure. Yeah, I did, of course. Did that stop? No, not really. The next morning, 1,200 miles away in Vancouver, a police officer knocked on Nellie's door. She was washing the dishes and saw him walk up to the house. When she answered the door, he told her Dorothy had been killed by her husband. She couldn't believe it. Nellie invited the officer in. She tried to absorb the news. The officer stayed and helped Nellie dry the dishes. John Ritter, one of the stars of They All Laughed, visited Peter in the days after, like any friend would. Audrey Hepburn came to the house with flowers. But according to Peter, few people in Hollywood, outside of the cast of They All Laughed, called or reached out to him. Actor Cary Grant was an exception. And the only person who didn't work on They All Laughed who called me was Cary. <sighs> I choke up a little bit thinking about it. Because <clears throat> he was so sweet. What he said to me was very sweet. He said, oh, Peter, I'm so sorry. What a terrible thing to happen to you. No one else? No. 
No, no, no. Hollywood, they run away from things like that, you know. Nobody wants to be involved with that kind of thing. But Gary was, he was a real pal. One of the people who should have called, of course, was Orson Welles. They still weren't speaking, but you'd think this kind of tragedy would supersede whatever gripes or resentments were keeping them apart. After all, Peters supported Wells's work, published books about him, and gave him a home when he needed it. But no call came. There was a funeral in Los Angeles. It was at the funeral that Peter met Nellie for the first time. She wanted her daughter cremated. Then she gave Peter consent to have Dorothy's ashes buried at Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery in L.A. Everyone gathered at Peter's home afterwards. In the weeks after Dorothy's death, Peter had to finish cutting They All Laughed. Couldn't leave. And the picture kept me going. I spent the entire time cutting the picture and doing all that stuff. I remember sitting in the chair at the cutting table with my hands clenched like this, fists. I remember going through the entire period, fists clenched. I don't know how I got through it. One thing that helped Peter get through it was an act of generosity. Around this time, Frank Sinatra sent Peter a copy of his new album. It was called Trilogy, Past, Present, and Future. I had met him a couple of times and talked to him, and, and I liked four songs I wanted to use in the picture, including the title song, They All Laughed, by uh, the Gershwins. And... Uh, so I called him and I said, Frank, I, I, I made this romantic comedy and I really would like to use four of the songs you, you recorded on that last album. Which ones, kid? I said, um, more than you know, they all laughed, you and me, and there was another one. The other song Peter can't remember is a little number you may have heard of. Start spreading the news I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it, New York, New York. Anyway, I said, but I don't have a lot of money, Frank. He said, I'll get back to you, kid. A week goes by, he calls me. I got you all four for five grand. Can you manage that? Now, do you know what it would have been? 75000 to 100000 per song. 5000 for the whole thing. The whole thing. It's just unbelievable. And I was very touched, very touched. Said, Jesus, Frank, thank you so much, so much. After he finished cutting the movie, Peter went to Vancouver to see Dorothy's family and to Amsterdam to meet her grandmother. He traveled to New York and London, visiting all of the places they'd gone together. He even stayed in the same London hotel rooms where he and Dorothy stayed. And off and on, he tried therapy. I went to a couple of three or four people, but I didn't. There was one guy I kind of liked, and I saw him quite a bit. In the throes of his grief, Peter made a bad decision, and not a small bad decision. 
a bad decision that changed his livelihood, one that would reverberate for years to come. He started to fight with the studio over the marketing for They All Laughed. I didn't like the ads. I said, fuck it, and I said, I'm going to buy it back and distribute it myself, which everybody said to me, don't do that, don't do that, Peter, don't do that. But Peter did it. He bought They All Laughed back from the studio and tried to distribute it himself. And I just didn't listen to anybody. I mortgaged the house. The Bel Air house? Yeah, mortgaged that house. It cost me about $5 million, which is all I had. And I went bust in the picture. Without the backing of a studio with an experienced distribution team, it's almost impossible to market and book a film in theaters across the country. You can't self-distribute because any studio can beat you out. I wanted the picture to be seen. I wanted her to be seen, as much as she could be. They All Laughed was not widely seen. The reviews were mixed. Variety liked it. The New York Times didn't. Peter was now grieving, and he was broke, and his movie was disappearing from screens. Peter would stay immersed in his grief, consumed by it, for the next five years. To this day, They All Laughed remains Peter's personal favorite of all his films. It's also admired by some of today's younger directors like Quentin Tarantino, Noah Baumbach, and Wes Anderson. On the 25th anniversary of They All Laughed, Wes Anderson, who directed Moonrise Kingdom and the Grand Budapest Hotel, interviewed Peter about the movie. I I really love the way it was shot. It's very kind of natural and fluid and has a a lot of energy, and it has a real kind of precision in the way it's done. Thank you. That's what I like. I mean, I like... Here, Peter tells Wes Anderson why it's his favorite. If you said to me, you know, what film of yours that you've made so far is most like you, I would say they all laughed. I don't know why. It's got my sense of humor. It's very romantic. It's uh, urban. It's New York, my hometown. Uh, I was was crazy about all the women in the picture. I was in love with Dorothy. I was crazy about Colleen and quite fond of Patty. And I loved Audrey Hepburn, of course. Hi, Angela. I'm Christy. Are you Christy Miller? No shit. There's some dispute about that, honey, but thanks. I love that record you did. After Peter and I talked about Dorothy, I made a decision. There was somewhere I wanted to go. My producer came along. One day I'm going to learn how this car works. That's going to be very exciting. And here we are, Westwood Memorial Park Cemetery. Man, this thing is hidden. You would never know. No, totally. It's tucked, tucked behind these big towers, which in Westwood across the street, really, from Westwood Village, across Wilshire Boulevard. And it's nice, too. They don't have maps. They don't encourage a no, lot of not. tourism. It's peaceful. It's very peaceful, yeah. All right, let's see if we All can right. find it. Yeah. People here, you know, someone who died in 1925, 1926. I saw in 1923. As I was walking, I saw Daryl Zanuck's grave is right over there, too. Just a small 
Daryl Zanuck, John Cassavetes, Farrah Fawcett, uh, and Dorothy Stratton. So Ben, why are we here? You know, I don't know why we're here. I mean, I know why we're here, but I don't know that I can express why we're here. If there was any hesitation about doing this podcast, it would be talking to Peter about the most important event of his life, Dorothy Stratton's murder. And and to do that, you got to tell so much of Dorothy's story, which has been told before in so many exploitative ways. You know, her murder was so sensational, so awful. Clearly, it was awful for Peter. And it was hard for me to talk to him about it. Harder for him to, to talk about it. So I don't know, it just sort of felt like I should come and see Dorothy's grave and, I don't know, seek her permission, which is nonsense, you know, just a way to make me feel better. And then I think, boy, we're here. This is exploitative. But but we're going to, you know, I want to tell her story well. Right there with the big plants of So we found Dorothy Stratton's gravesite. February 28th, 1960 to August 14th, 1980. She's 20 years old, 20 and a half. Um, and Peter chose the quote on it. It's from uh, A Farewell to Arms. And I guess it's Peter shortened it, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a Hemingway quote. Uh, if people bring so much courage to this world, the world has to kill them to break them. So of course it kills them. It kills the very good and the very gentle and the very brave impartially. If you were none of these, you can be sure that it will kill you too, but there will be no special hurry. Uh, we love you, DR. Uh, that's what he called it. It's nice, it's a good quote. It makes me happy to think Peter comes here. Yeah, this is a nice place to come. Next time on The Plot Thickens, Peter tries to put his life back together. I turned down a lot of things. I didn't want to work. I thought I'd never make another picture. The only reason I really did make another picture is that I needed the money. I was broke. Really broke. And he finds love in an unexpected place. I didn't fall in love with Louise because she was like Dorothy. Although she is in certain ways, and she's as kind and as thoughtful and as self-effacing, but just I, I just got along with her and she was funny and we got along. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Our story editors are Joanne Farian and Susan White, editing by Mike Volgaris. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music, mixing by Tim Pelletier and Glenn Matulo. Production support from Yaakov Friedman, Susanna Zapeda, Julie Batone, Mario Riles, Heather Geltzer, Philip Richards, Ben Holst, DePonker Mazumder, 
Bailey Tyler, Zara Chowdhury, Jeff Stafford, and Millie DeCherico. Our web team is Josh Lubin, Mike McKenzie, and Matthew Ownby. Special thanks to Scott McGee, Steve Denker, and the Warner Media Podcast Network. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagna. Our executive producer is Charlie Tabish, my great friend. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash The Plot Thickens. It has lists of all the movies we've talked about, info about each episode, tons of great photos, a lot of cool stuff. Again, that's tcm.com backslash The Plot Thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized, on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.